Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. My guest today is Colonel Dave Redmond. And if there ever was somebody you'd want to look to as who's an expert on all things emergencies in countries and provinces, this would be the man. Executive Director for Alberta Emergency Management, 27 years in the military, five years with Emergency Management Alberta, another seven years counseling with governments like the United States and Canada for emergency management. Uh, he's retired now, but an amazing interview. You're going to love listening to this man outline what is happening today and what should have been happening today. Dave, it's good to have you with me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Leon. We have so much to talk about and... Um, you have been a very outspoken advocate on how everything has been handled at the provincial level and at the federal level. And uh, you are an expert on emergency things. I mean, like, it's one thing to govern during peacetime, but emergencies, whether they're military or paramedics or police, they're always handled differently. There's always a set uh, uh, guidelines, there's principles, there's things in place so that people don't go on tilt in their head. I mean, that's how we train firemen, that's how we train paramedics, that's how we train police. This is how you handle this situation. And there's always a very clear outline. And there's one for the government, isn't there? Tell me a little bit about that. There's a process called emergency management. It's a discipline. It's not a it's not just a random group of people. It's people that have trained specifically in every province and territory in Canada. There's an EMO, an emergency management organization from coast to coast to coast. So 13 out of 13 provinces and territories have them. There's a group called SORM, which is the senior officials responsible for emergency management, which is the head of those organizations that meets twice a year. And they prepare, they mitigate, prepare, plan and respond. Uh, to all emergencies and then build recovery plans afterwards. These people are specially trained. Most of them come with a, a military background or a policing or a fire background because at the tactical level, the incident command system is taught to all our first responders and it's how you work a group together. At a higher level, it's, it's called the estimate of the situation or the operational planning process. And it's what emergency managers are trained to do to bring a complete team across all sectors of our, our society together to respond appropriately, bringing all those experts into a single coherent plan. So when this all broke out in 2020 and, and everybody, you know, they started telling people what was going on, did they keep any of these steps in my opinion and based on the evidence i've seen absolutely not um, they didn't pull their original plan which and and i want to make it clear a pl framework plan is built for each hazard specific area that's required and then there's an overarching uh, alberta emergency plan which covers the normal routine types of emergencies fires floods tornadoes that plan, the original one from 2014, was a comprehensive plan for any type of virus. And so what needed to be done is that plan needed to be taken. It needed to be tailored for the SARS-CoV-2 virus and then written into a full written plan and issued to the public through the media. That way, everyone in the public knows exactly, first of all, they have confidence in government. They know the government has 
a complete plan. They also know their part in the plan because they'll be shown right in the plan what, what the public needs to do. And they can follow along and provide feedback to the government in areas where they think maybe the government didn't have a complete concept. They can provide feedback on a continuing basis and be part of the response to this pandemic. That, that development of the plan with all of the experts was one of the key steps that was never done, in my opinion, in this province or in any province in Canada. We shifted immediately to taking that responsibility, handing it to medical officers of health who are not trained in the discipline of emergency management, who never brought the full group of experts together across all of society, and they simply responded by the mission statement which was to protect the medical system. And, and I really want to dwell on that for just a second. Go for it. The mission statement should have come from the Premier and should have constantly been coming out of the Premier's mouth. And the mission statement should have been to minimize the impact of SARS-CoV-2 on Alberta or whichever province. That means that it's important that we protect all the sectors of our economy all the people that work in all of those sectors of our economy and that we will have a uniform approach which is to protect the entire society by saying that only the medical officers of health the, the medical officers help to protect our medical system instantly brings into uh, uh, question two things number one you mean our medical system can fail that's fear and number two nothing else counts nothing else in alberta counts except the medical system and we heard that mission statement from our medical officers repeatedly to this day when you look at what you've just said then it's like people who didn't know what they were doing were running the province because how could one doctor in charge of health care um along with a you know a premier or you know a minister of health how could they just make decisions on the complexity of trying to keep everything going in a province they couldn't and it was obvious that they they still believed that their mission statement was correct the premier should have immediately built a task force on the pandemic Hmm. That task force should have had people from the energy sector, from the livestock sector, from the retail sector, from the small business sector, most importantly, from the education sector. And when I say that, I mean people that work in the sector, not just the ministers. As well, we should have had the municipal order of government, both rural and urban, in the room right from the start as part of that task force, with chairs on that task force. Let me give you the example of counterterrorism. On September the 11th, we accepted into Alberta 24 wide-body aircraft into Edmonton and, uh, sorry, 22 in Edmonton, 24 in Calgary. And so the emergency management organization in Alberta, I was a director at the time, there's only two of us, we opened our operations center and helped 34 municipalities receive all the passengers off those planes. We recorded them, we made sure exactly where they went. And the reason not 34, because Calgary and Edmonton couldn't accept that number of people. There simply wasn't enough bed spaces. So we spread them out through the communities using the municipal emergency plans that are written and held by 314 communities in this province. They've been completely excluded out of this pandemic response. But 
the very that night i was still working in the op center about eight o'clock when i got a phone call from my boss and he said go home get some sleep you have to report to the task force on security tomorrow morning at eight o'clock in the energy tower when i walked into the room at eight o'clock the next morning 26 of what i consider to be the smartest people in alberta were assembled in that room and they'd been assembled by the premier ralph klein had decided who needed to be there and they were in the room. Now there was no ministers in the room, no elected officials. There was 10 deputies from the 10 most important departments in the government of Alberta for counterterrorism. But there was also representation from each of the major industry sectors. There was representation from the federal government and the municipal government. So we had covered all orders of government, the complete all sectors of the economy of Alberta, and we did they didn't know it at the time, but they did the first step, which was called mission analysis, defining the what. But the formation of that task force on security, just like the formation of a task force on the pandemic, should have been directed by the premier and should have represented all of society. Instead, what happened, the premier handed the power to the medical officer of health, and she formed a task force on the pandemic which only included medical expertise. It didn't even think about the power grid, the water supply system, which is municipal order of government, not provincial order of government, the livestock sector, the impact on things like abattoirs and food processing plants. But even worse, there was not even a person in there representing education. The impact of the response we followed on our children will last their whole lives. 60 years till they eventually die, they will suffer from what we have done to them, both academically, but far more importantly, in crushing their social development by removing them from their schools or threatening constantly to remove them from their schools. The fact that we didn't even consider the negative outcomes because we had to protect our medical system and forget everyone else is what got us where we are today. Was the medical system in great, in a, in great shape anyway? We know from studies, um, uh, the Organization of Economically Developed Countries has constantly reported on the status of medical systems in, in the free world. Let's call it that for now. Canada has routinely replaced second worst in capacity and in response times, while ranking second highest in what it costs our taxpayers. So for the second highest amount of money in, we've got the second worst outcomes. So there was always capacity issues in our country that were well known, well reported for the past decade. And, and these reports are annual, they come out of the OECD, anyone can find them, just type in organization economic developed countries. And so we knew right from the start that we probably had a capacity issue. So let me define, make sure everybody understands capacity. Capacity is both acute care beds as well as ICUs, but also number of doctors, all, all the things that make up capacity. There's seven resources that are required in response to, to any activity. So, and people being one, infrastructure, equipment, supplies, uh, money, there's the seven. So, so we already knew we had a challenge. So that should have been a real inspiration to understand the second term, which is surge capacity. Now, surge capacity is a standard operational practice in every emergency. So what surge capacity means is you need to ensure you have 
more new, not, not, not re-rolling, new personnel, proper infrastructure, expanded, equipment and supplies. Those are the four key concepts. So right away, back in February of 2020, as we saw this virus coming, if we pulled out our plan, started to dust it off, we should have known that we were going to probably need surge capacity if this developed into a pandemic, which would increase our hospital system, not re-roll doctors that used to work on diabetes and, and turn them into COVID doctors while we ignored the people with diabetes. So we needed to develop that new capacity and there's many, many ways to do it. I've written it in my, my position paper, Canada's deadly response to COVID-19 because it ha it's done all the time. Fires, floods, tornadoes, terrorism, pandemics, you instantly think surge capacity and where's it gonna be needed most? So let me take it away from the medical setting. It's not just for doctors. Our power grid in, in the province of Alberta, we know from previous pandemics, you never isolate healthy people, but we did that. That's one of the NPIs that you should never use. And it says exactly why in a document we'll talk about later. But you know in a pandemic, people will get sick. And so sooner or later, let's say in the power grid, there's not enough people to come to work one day in a specific function that is the critical piece of the infrastructure. Let's talk about water supply. At the municipal level, there's very few people that run your water supply in a town or a village or a city. You need to be ready for when so many of them get sick because it's a pandemic that they can't come to work on the same day. So you need to have surge capacity so that when a group gets sick, you have people that aren't in that same social group, so may not have gotten sick, that can come in and replace them for a very short period of time and then go back to other employment. That concept of surge capacity should have been applied across every sector of our economy. It wasn't even applied to the medical no. system. And I will point out uh, the statement that made that slap me in the face that they had completely ignored it was, first of all, how they handled first wave. In the second wave, it took till November till our medical officer of health very proudly on TV one night, which caused me to scream at my television, said, and I quote, we're now looking at lists of retired doctors to see if they would be interested in coming back to help us. That should have happened in February of 2020. But way more than old retired doctors, we should have had advanced education as part of the governance committee, trying to figure out how we could produce nurses faster, doctors faster. Did they need the full breadth of the training that was ahead of them? Could we shorten residency? Could we get specific people into specific jobs while allowing generalists to cover off other jobs that maybe didn't need a nurse or a doctor just for the pandemic? We'd go back to those same rules after, but for that short period of time, we could qualify people for exact functions to do just enough. We didn't. No, where there's no leadership, where there's no like wise leadership, people, they just crumble. And then when you begin to create fear and fear, these systems that are even in place fall apart, which is I think what we began to see. Absolutely. Um, and, and let's come back to fear in a minute just, just just for a second though i want to talk about the people that were in all the systems and and specifically focus on the medical system there was a lot of people in the medical system trying to advise that what we were doing was wrong 
the doctors that look after other severe illnesses and disease that look after children were speaking up and were squished. And by squished, I mean threatened to have their careers taken away or actually having their careers taken away by the College of Physicians and Surgeons, who clearly believed that lockdowns were extremely effective and had no negative impacts and that the, the only way out of this was vaccines. So any dissenting voice, there was lots of really good people in emergency management, in the medical system, in other walks of life, trying to help advise the government and the medical officer of health. They were either dismissed, not listened to, ignored, or gotten rid of. And the suppression of all other voices. So that was the, the, the first part. Let's go back to fear. When I was a young officer, I was running to teach a class one day bunch of warrant officers and and I was an instructor in the school after my first two operational tours I was brought to back to be an instructor to teach the next young officers and and senior warrant officers warrant officers and NCOs in my my core and I was running to teach a class I was about two minutes late and a senior captain was walking towards me a really good friend of mine and he he just he went Dave stop so I stopped senior captain he was my two IC he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to teach a class, Don. I've got to get there. I'm late. He said, officers never run. Now, you might think that that was being snotty, but it was exactly the opposite. He said, think about what the troops see when an officer is running. It means something terrible is happening, and it creates fear. Never create fear. Never run. I looked him right in the eye. I said, Don, thanks very much. I marched to my class and taught my class. 20 years later, I was in Bosnia in the middle of one of the most horrific civil wars in 1995 with my mm. battalion. And Don Tiller's voice rang, and he's no longer with us, I'm sorry to say, he passed away young, rang in the back of my head constantly. The soldiers watch you every minute of every day you must show confidence not fear the opposite of fear is confidence right you got to show confidence every day and so what should have been happening in alberta let me take that story to here in, during this pandemic we should never have been told that our medical system was going to be overwhelmed the opposite of fear is confidence we should have been told we're building new surge capacity and folks, we hope never to use it. So when you see it sitting idle, it's not a failure. It's that we're ready. We've got surge capacity. We've built new infrastructure. Look, I'll give you a tour. Come on, media, let's go for a tour of, of the new surge. And here's how we're going to stop it. Here's how we've gotten the doctors, sufficient doctors and nurses and, and assistants to run this. And look, we've even got all the support services, you know, the cleaning that it's all taken care of. So you never have to worry that your hospital system will not fail you in this pandemic. Secondly, the very most important thing to know about this coronavirus was it attacked our seniors. It attacked our seniors with severe multiple comorbidities. So instead of saying, you know what, we've got this, we've looked at this, we're now putting special uh, accommodations into our long-term care homes where our seniors are in large quantities. We built programs for our seniors that are living at large in multi-generational homes or that are living on their own. We've got a plan, here's our plan, here's how we're gonna address it. Any feedback would be strongly appreciated. Instead, we said, 
grandchildren, don't hug your grandparents, you'll kill them. Right? You remember the messaging. You know, we've got to plank the wave. We've got to stop the wave. We've got to make sure that we wear masks to protect ourselves. No, no, no. We wear masks to protect others. Masks are ineffective in the general population. We know it study after study before the pandemic proved, study after studies proved since. It's one of 15 non-pharmaceutical interventions. Masks should be worn for symptomatic people in hospital settings. Point final. When I gave the presentations with my colleagues to the public on what we were doing in counterterrorism, my aim was to ensure that the public knew we would never deny a charter right or freedom. Because if we did, the terrorists have won. That was the whole aim of counterterrorism, was not to allow the terrorists to take away and destroy our democracy. And yet we handed the power to the medical officer of health who has done it repeatedly for two years, denying almost every one of the first four fundamental charter rights and freedoms. And we've never questioned them. We've never expected the Oaks test to be met, which is the minimum standard that you must meet before you deny a charter right, never been displayed. Yeah, and when you look at mental health, everyone thinks it happens with one event, but there's this slow erosion that is actually driving it deeper. So I, I totally agree. Um, it's interesting to me, how do you respond to this, that an em we have an emergency as a nation, somebody outside of the nation decided that, and that seemed to come into our nation, and other nations decided for themselves, was this an emergency? Um, who says that, that we had an emergency? The declaration of a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic, it is normal. That, that's a normal process. But what's not normal is how we responded. And gotcha. each country, and in the states, in the United States, each state decided how they would respond. The fact that 13 out of 13 provinces and territories in Canada responded the same to me is extremely troubling. It shows that fear got into our premiers, who immediately flipped to their medical officers of health, who then responded with fear. That, that's a complete breakdown, I believe, in public health in Canada. But how and long would it have taken them to know the truth? Like, how, how one of the things I've heard people say is, well, you know what, we've never done this before. Give us some latitude here, uh, you know. And so, yes, we're going to make mistakes. But how long do we give them to make mistakes? When should they, how many months in should they have gone, okay, we figured some stuff out here. It's time to sit down and take a fresh look at how we handled this and regroup. When, when was that, do you think? I don't believe we should have done anything that we did. I don't believe we should have used any of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that caused a denial of a charter right or freedom. Mm -hmm. If we were going to, we had to do a full cost-benefit analysis to prove that that NPI would do less harm than not using it. And so I believe if we had followed the process, we would have followed Technol's response, which was our response prior to this pandemic for every pandemic. But if you're gonna give wiggle room, if you really believe that it was just too overwhelming and that gee whiz, there was no process that could have guessed this, which I don't believe, you get two weeks of the first wave. And then you should start to realize that what you're doing isn't having an effect. 
in the non-pharmaceutical interventions, some are recommended, not closure of business, not closure of schools ever, but some of them like border issues and the rest of that, they say you can delay for up to two weeks, but once the disease is into your country, they're, they're completely ineffective. We're still seeing the vaccine uh, passports breaking our country apart for, for driver, truck drivers. They're good for the first two weeks at the very start when the virus first appears in your community and then you remove them. So two weeks, that's how long we give them to do the inappropriate response. If we closed schools for two weeks, if we had uh, closed businesses for two weeks and then fully reopened, the collateral damage caused by them would have been minimized and we should have carried on like Sweden did. A family that I know well, she had um, cancer and was in the beginnings of treatment, getting looked at, and then they told me during this time uh, that she would try to get in to see her doctor or to continue having them examine her, what do we do next? And they were always COVID, 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 COVID for whatever reasons they said. And uh, so um, she died and it was not fourth stage at all. It was minor when they first found it, according to them, and uh, that if they could have met with the doctors and continued treatment and surgery and whatever was needed, uh, but they didn't really, they said, look at her until it was so bad now that they brought her in and uh, she subsequently died. Do we have a lot of people saying that, that they've lost loved ones in other areas, not COVID, uh, but in all the other diseases that are going on because um, of this panic and this fear that everything's got to be left for COVID? In the fall of 2021, a large, very large group of doctors in Alberta made a very public statement saying that the hospitals were not being overwhelmed with COVID patients. They were being overwhelmed with patients who had not had diagnosis or not had diagnosis till too late and not had appropriate treatments caused by our use of non-pharmaceutical interventions. That the system was being overwhelmed by people showing up too late. And, and it was a big press release. It was done by a, a large group of doctors in Alberta. It's been the same message has shown up in every province and territory and federally. Um, and, and so the, the impact of the mentality that our hospital system will be overwhelmed, so nothing counts but a COVID death, has had a massive impact. And it's, it, it's had it across all of the other severe illnesses and disease simply because diagnosis and treatment was delayed and not necessarily even by a direct edict from the medical officer of health, but because of the fear that we instilled in Albertans that refused to go see the doctor for fear of catching COVID in the waiting room of doctors too fearful for their own lives from COVID. So making only online appointments and severely limiting the number of appointments because of the backlog, but but more so because that system takes longer, it doesn't work as well, and not being able to actually see the patient. So there's a whole pile of these non-attributable to COVID deaths that are attributable to our response to COVID. So I keep coming back to people and saying, it, it the collateral deaths and impact, there's been huge studies. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Douglas Allen out of Simon Fraser University did an excellent study in the second wave saying that 
the, the collateral damage to these things is going to go down as the worst public policy decision in the history of our country. And, and, and Dr. Eri Jaffe, right here in, in Alberta, has estimated that it's a minimum of 10 times more deaths and damage to be caused by the use of lockdowns, NPIs, than COVID ever could have done. But I want to bring us back to one thought wow. right at the very start. Yeah, 10, Ten times, times minimum. Where, where minimum. in, in uh, Doc Douglas Allen's, he, he goes, he says up to 200 times. Whoa. And he's studied, studied, he's collected all the world's best information. They took away your job and destroyed business, destroyed the mental health. People always say to me, oh, you, you, you're putting money ahead of people. I'm doing exactly the opposite. Let me make two points about money. Number one, the people that earn that money that you've destroyed their business, their mental health and societal health has been damaged for their whole life. Their confidence in government and confidence in themselves has been eroded, if not destroyed. On the other side of it, our country went from $750 billion national debt to $1.3 trillion in national debt. And if we don't think that the servicing alone of that debt, let alone paying it back, our grandchildren will still be paying for that debt when they die. And that servicing of that debt and paying off that debt is going to diminish the ability for federal transfers for healthcare, for social programs, for any new initiatives that our country wants to do. And we did exactly the same thing at every province and territory in Canada. The massive national debt, federal and provincial, will haunt our grandchildren. We've spent their tax dollars to protect us from a virus that for those under 60 is less than seasonal influenza in terms of risk. Leaders uh, uh, don't seem to be going back to what you're talking about. What should we be doing as Canadians uh, when it comes to saying, okay, we need our country back. We, we need to get back to wise leadership is what I'm hearing you say repeatedly. Absolutely. So as someone who has been in several war zones in his life and has seen the massive terrible things that happen when authoritarian governments are in charge, I will never support any action that even in any way might take our country there. So my answer to your question is this, until we get competent leadership, at the provincial and federal level in this country who understands what we've been trying to advise them to do, people like me and others, there will be no withdrawal. Only a premier can walk a province out of what they've done. And only the prime minister can walk our country out of what he's done. So there are democratic, staunch democratic ways to replace leadership. First of all, inside a party, no one ever said the leader of that party has to be the only choice forever. We need to have the people that run those parties have leadership reviews and search for a leader that understands how you properly respond to a pandemic, like Sweden, as opposed to what our leaders have done and have refused to change from. So you can replace leadership in a party anytime. It's up to the party to decide. And I don't believe that in the next election, if we simply replace a premier with a leader who's already in place from an opposition, who in fact wants more lockdowns, longer, deeper, and more severe, 
that we will ever come out of this. So every party, whether they're in government or in opposition, needs to look at their leaders and decide who they want to lead us back to recover our country from this terrible, deadly response. So uh, I strongly support any type of legal protest to let the governments know that they need to change their leaders. And I put heavy emphasis on legal and I let everyone define what they they want to be legal, but our courts should know the difference between illegal and legal protest, right? That, that's not mine to define. I simply state that there's many mechanisms to put pressure on current leadership to either do the right thing or get out of the way. And, and I don't mean by overthrowing government, I mean by internal democratic right. party politics inside the party. And then whenever your province comes up for a next election, choose a premier that's going to give us Canada back the way it was in December 2019. I don't want a, a, a leader that says we're going to remove all of the restrictions. And then in the very next breath say, but we're going to continue to monitor the new emerging variants and be prepared to return them if required. That means your province will never recover. Well, Dave, thank you for talking with me. I think that one of the huge answers is just educating the nation of Canada with experts, giving them a voice in all their different areas like you and saying, hey, there's an alternative here uh, to just lockdowns and taking away our freedom. So, man, I could talk for another hour with you. Thank you so much for being with me, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.